0: Thank uh-huh. you.
1: Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On.
2: We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders,
1: the influencers, the
2: insights.
3: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors. The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months.
1: Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Infrastructure, plus we check in with Adam Bowler. What's he been up to? He's launching a healthcare firm. He's going to give us the former uh, DFC chairman. is going to give us an update on what he's been up to, plus... U.S.-China relations. Adam Goodman's with me for the hour. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Adam Goodman. Adam is a national Republican media strategist and a columnist. He is also the first Edward R. Murrow senior fellow at Tufts University's Fletcher School. Uh, let's begin with the big story. And that is infrastructure. Did you see President Biden's remarks earlier this afternoon? He made the case today for his two and a quarter trillion dollar infrastructure plan as more Democrats pushed back on the price tag. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, he's the top Biden ally. He said today the Democrats may have to settle for a less robust package that only focuses on what he called hard infrastructure. And earlier this week, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said that he doesn't support raising the corporate tax rate to 28 percent. The moderates are speaking out. The centrists are utilizing their political capital. Speaking at the White House earlier today, President Biden said there was a time when railroads and highways were not considered infrastructure until the country built them. Here's the sound on the roads. The idea of
4: infrastructure has always evolved. To meet the aspirations of the American people and their needs, and it's evolving again today.
2: He went on to say, though, he's open for negotiations.
4: I'm willing to listen to that. I'm willing. I'm wide open to, but we got to pay for this.
2: You know, someone whose whose opinion I res- I respect, I trust, is Ian Bremmer. He's the founder and president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, and he spoke with my colleague David Weston today on Balance of Power. Brilliant conversation. Because they brought up Manchin, the man in the middle, Manchin in the middle, and they asked him point blank about how Joe Manchin, the Mountaineer, has become the most powerful person in Washington, D.C. Here he is. I was actually briefing Senate Intel Committee uh, yesterday morning. The biggest laugh line I got was when I said, look, you guys just need to throw Manchin more money. Uh, (laughs) Brady's (laughs) the most powerful person in the United States government right now. And, uh, you know, his resistance uh, to new taxes to pay for the trillions of dollars that we're talking about in infrastructure um, is is significant. See, the reason I like Bremer so much, Jeannie, is because he says Significant, whereas I want to say it's a huge deal. You know, I get a little emotive sometimes, a little too much, Jeannie. But I agree with Bremer's point.
3: I agree as well. And as long as you don't say bigly, I think we're good to go. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but <laughs> I just want to give huge. you a laugh, Kevin. But um, you know, I, I you know Ian makes a really important point. Obviously, Joe Manchin. You know, as you mentioned, most powerful. Or he mentioned most powerful man in, in, in Congress, person in Congress, if not in American politics today. But this is what happens once the parliamentarian says they can use reconciliation. We're going to see a lot more moderate Democrats flexing their power. And it's not, you know, this happens every single time. It happened in the Affordable Care Act debate. It's going to happen now. It's part of the way our system works, and nobody can be surprised by this.
2: Adam Goodman, the problem for the moderates has always been they get lumped into this artificial debate that if they're not for Lowering or raising the corporate tax rate—that they're for corporations and they're against the middle class. How do they push back against that criticism from the AOC crowd?
4: They get behind the mountain of mansion. <laughs> I mean, isn't it amazing how one? Isn't it <laughs> ama- I mean, there, are, there? are a of those, right? <laughs> isn't it amazing how one person of we'll call conscience can actually uh, kind of stop the trains that normally kind of overrun uh, common sense. And practicality, uh, and it seen, I tell you, with a, 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 Senate and a House that's become much more, uh, you know, run by the, by the, by leadership where, you know, the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, uh, they kind of command the ship or have. I think that's giving way. And you watch what's going to happen in the, uh, months and years ahead, actually, as more and more members of the U.S. Senate in particular, you see this in the House as well. But in, the, but in the U.S. Senate, start to flex their independent muscles uh, in the center and how suddenly uh, you know maybe the American public can take a look at what's going on in Washington and, and once in a while say, you know what, they're kind of getting it right. And one person who's thanking his lucky stars, that Joe Manchin is there, frankly, I know it sounds odd, is President Joe Biden, because I think oh, Manchin's politics, a thousand politics thousand really align with his.
2: Well, and and, and to follow up on that, Adam, I mean, let me me ask you this, because uh, this is the new triangulation of of, of power in Washington, D.C. It's Manchin in the middle. It's Mitch McConnell and it's President Biden. And between the three of them, they're brokering the deals and everything's going through them. And uh, so Manchin's one goalpost and I would argue McConnell's the other and less so the, the the, the, the far-left movement. Because for Senator Chris Coons, who, as anyone who has listened to this program knows, is, always has the ear of President Biden, for him to put down a marker today, I tracked this thing, for him to say, yeah. we might have to do a hard infrastructure bill, okay, now they're open. now it's an open negotiation season. So if, to, to give it top-line view, you've got Biden lays down the gauntlet in Pittsburgh, you've got Mitch McConnell in Kentucky saying that it's a Trojan horse, and then you've got, uh, now you've got Coons, his ally, saying, well, actually, we're willing to negotiate. So, what's now? now? Now's where they they talk, right, Adam? Well, let's go. Let's
4: talk about what they're talking about. It's infrastructure, <laughs> right? Why is it? Uh, why is it, Kevin and Jeannie, that uh, the Democrats are trying to sell the biggest infrastructure program in the history of the planet, uh, or trying to pass it rather before selling it, before explaining it, before getting people on board? They're saying, "Well, here's the price tag." Now, let's tell you what's in it. And then when, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, said, well, you know what? Uh, trains not enough. We have to go 10. Um, and then she's, you know, cherry tree, she's Christmas tree and everything with, uh, healthcare and a down payment on her Green New Deal and all the rest of this. Why is it that this came out of the box? An incredibly important thing, which by the way is going to, could put us, could put us if done right in a position where we put China and others in our rear view mirror again. Why didn't they just think this for a second? Maybe we should tell people first and kind of sell people first before we start to push another big hit to American taxpayers.
3: Well, no, I think Adam raises a really important point, which has been the the major discussion in Washington, which is what is infrastructure? I mean, we all saw Kristen Gillibrand today tweeting that infrastructure is paid leave, child care, caregiving infrastructure, (laughs) that all amounts to infrastructure. You have Republicans pushing back saying she's writing our talking points for 2022 for us. And I think to, to To your point, Kevin, you know, what Chris Coons is is signaling is they may come somewhere in the middle, but where exactly that's going to be is unclear. I mean, what I heard Biden say today is that he's willing to compromise. I don't know if I believe it, but he said it. But he also said what he's not going to put up with is doing nothing. And I do think he's got room to negotiate with Republicans because this bill remains popular with the American public. In many ways, even amongst Republicans, if not independents.
2: I mean, again, I hear you on that, and and I'm always skeptical of those top line polls, because I think parts of this, you know, and, and who was it? Former Vice President Mike Pence today released his uh, new action pack or whatever, you know, first step in 2024. And part of his economic proposal is audit the Fed, rein in uh, wasteful spending. It's right there in his outline. So I think the Republicans are going to start talking about these deficits. But here's here, speaking of Republicans, Jeannie, you brought him up. Senator Mitch McConnell. He was in in Kentucky, Paducah, Kentucky, earlier today <laughs> at a hospital talking about vaccine distribution. And every all the reporters wanted to talk about the infrastructure plan. Here's here's the sound on Paducah. <laughs> we have it? I guess we don't We're have
1: hopeful it. that not every single Democrat, even though they all saluted and signed up for this package earlier this year, will have some skepticism about this massive growth of government.
2: I mean, there, there you go, Adam. Down in Paducah, they're, they're, they're talking about how skeptical he is of the taxes.
4: That's Paducah common sense for you, and, and they're right. <laughs> hey, look, look, at let's talk about uh, what it's going to take. I mean, we don't seem to start like with, you know, the ABCs. The civil engineers of America have said that just to fix what's broken in, in traditional infrastructure is going to take somewhere between 2 and $5 trillion. So, is that, But that's not what the president said today. He said we've got to start redefining what infrastructure is, so clearly that means – He's not interested in fixing everything that's broken before he starts to build things that aren't there uh, without any kind of groundswell of pub- demonstrated public support behind what it is. And you're right, Kevin, when you say don't believe the polls, because we don't Americans aren't informed enough to make, you know, a, a kind of a, a practical assessment of what this really means to them and whether it's it's it's, you know, it's proper. It's it's uh, is properly funded It'll do what's said to be, you know, said promised to be done. And you go back to FDR and go back to FDR. FDR said to America, yeah. we're going to, we're going to rise. All ships will rise and we're going to rise together. And he sold the program. It was then the biggest program in the history of the planet of in infrastructure. Wow. And for a lot of reasons, it worked. Now we have a chance to do that, but we don't do that by press release,
2: we right? Do we that don't
4: by pulling together.
2: All right, we're going to talk much more about this coming up. And, and here's a fun fact for you: you know what's headquartered in Paducah. Dippin' Dots. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Bloomberg Politics Contributor Jeannie Sean with me. Adam Goodman, a Republican media strategist, is with me. Earlier we were talking about Paducah, Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell was speaking earlier today, talking about infrastructure. Dippin' Dots is headquartered in Paducah. Hey, you know what my first job was, Jeannie?
3: I am going to guess an ice cream man. You were serving. I ice did.
2: Cream. I was. I was a crew leader
3: at <laughs> Coldstone
2: Creamery in Media, <laughs> Pennsylvania. And let me tell you something: the founder's favorite. Wait, I can wait. Still it make was it.
3: named Media, Pennsylvania. Wait, that is actually weird. You're the first
2: person to actually wow. flag this and bring this to my attention. <laughs>
3: it's all coming full circle, Kevin.
2: <laughs> Adam, it's like I'm a, I'm a I'm a chameleon communicator. You following me? <laughs>
4: It was
5: meant to be. What in was your first? I
2: know. Away. See, in the course of this, I, I think radio is just an ongoing conversation, and we uh, we know that Jeannie's first job was at a Blockbuster Video store. Adam, what was your first job?
4: Oh my gosh, uh, this will date me. I was my first job was uh, riding a shotgun on a Good Humor ice cream truck.
0: That's uh, awesome.
4: Yes, and what got me was after a couple weeks of doing that. I would go to bed at night and I'd still be hearing the, the bells ringing, which, you, you know, when you ring the bells all the way up and down the street to the point where I thought I was going to uh, lose my sanity. So I politely declined. It gave me, I think, about three dozen ice cream bars and said, good luck <laughs> in your, with your future.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to out myself and, and, and I shouldn't do this. But on my last night, it was my last day on the job at Cold Stone Creamery. And I, let's just say I was in high school and I invited all my friends and <laughs> there was there was a lot of ice cream being given out. You know, I, I'm a capitalist, but when it comes to ice cream, everybody I deserves it I hope you for paid free. for you each know? and
3: every one of those, Kevin Cerulli. Really. You
2: know, I, I can't lie. I'm Catholic. <laughs> I did not I did not Okay. But hey, oh, well. Anyway, no, no, no. I, I, I'm by the book, especially when it comes to ice cream delivery <laughs> services. I'm digging the hole deeper, as Tom Keene says, and deeper and deeper. Let's talk U.S.-China relations, shall we? Adam's got a great new column out. I love this column, and it's it's a topic that I'm obsessed with. Uh, it's the Beijing Olympics in 2022, and he wrote it for The Daily Caller, and the headline is, The U.S. Should Go to Beijing Olympics in 2022 and Beat the Chinese on Their Own Surf. And I've been asking uh, China experts about this throughout the past couple of months. You argue that we should appear at the Beijing Games. Why?
4: Well, there have been six boycotts, uh, in the history of the Olympics going back to 1956 in Melbourne where Egypt and, and others were protesting, uh, the Suez Canal crisis. Uh, and, uh, there was one in Tokyo where China and North Korea, uh, did uh, try to launch a counter Olympics and they, they shunned that. The problem is the Olympics is one of those things that gives all of us on this planet something potentially to cheer for instead of to root against and at, at a time when, you know, collegiality and camaraderie seem to be flying by the boards. This is our chance to, to, to show that. And and by showing up and by doing well, frankly, I think we send a more powerful message than trying to talk tough and act tough uh, towards uh, the People's Republic of China. And that's why I think we should go. Uh, look, they do lousy things, uh and i point this out there are a lot of legitimate gripes about what china is is doing they cheat they manipulate they are absolute conformists they are big brother you know on steroids uh what they're doing with the ugars is just like unconscionable uh what they think they're about to do which bloomberg was reporting out uh, somewhat today uh with taiwan is frightening all those things right hate that part uh their unfair trade the manipulation of currency go down the whole list however I remember seeing the, the clips of Jesse Owens in the 36 games in Berlin. I remember how that felt even decades later when I was breathing air for the first time on the, uh, on earth, how, how that made me, me feel and how it made others feel about having sent one of the most powerful signals against one of the worst acts in the history of mankind that was to come. And that is, this is a, an opportunity for us to do something similar. So, yes, yes, we have a lot of beefs. There are a lot of things wrong in the, in the China-U.S. relationship. But you want to, I not how you want to put it, you want to one-up it. You want to really show up and show the world that we're ready to lead in a, in a way where excellence is prized. Uh, I think this is the place to go, and Beijing, is, is, um, I think, is well-timed for just that.
2: Well, take a listen to what Jen Psaki, White House press secretary, had to say about the Olympics earlier today. Here's the sound on on, uh, the Olympics.
0: Our position on the 2022 Olympics uh, has not changed. We have not discussed and are not discussing any joint boycott with allies and partners.
3: You know what I was, and I strongly recommend Adams' piece as well. What I was struck by is the fact the State Department did raise this issue, and I was glad she walked it back today. I think it is a horrible idea, and let's just ask Jimmy Carter, who said it was the worst decision he made as president was the boycott that he put in place. There's no benefit to the United States to boycott, and let's not forget we would be doing it basically alone or with a few allies, and to what end? So I couldn't agree more with Adam's assessment here. And speaking of um, our colleague David Weston, when he talked to Ian Bremmer, Ian had some really good points on this as well.
2: Fascinating. I, I think I think it's going to be remarkable. And already there was a great Eurasia Group briefing uh, that came out that suggested that the Communist Party of China is already pressuring third uh, other smaller countries uh, in Africa in particular, saying if you go on a boycott, you will be retaliated against economically. Here we go, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.
1: Casting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 991 to New York, Bloomberg 11.3.0, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli.
2: Coming up, we check in with Adam Bowler. You don't want to miss what he's up to. Jen Jacobs, my friend had the scoop he's launching a new investment firm it's fascinating fascinating politics plus 2024 already underway former vice president mike pence i just got the the press release he's launching an advisory committee pack first step in 2024 and he's writing an autobiography i want to know what happened in january my name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by uh, Bloomberg contributor Jeanne Zeno and Adam Goodman, National Republican Media Strategist and Columnist. Adam is also the first Edward R. Murrow, Senior Fellow at Tufts University's Fletcher School. Should we do it? Should we talk about 2024? Is it too early? We're not even done President Biden's. Uh, <laughs> First 100 days, but former Vice President Mike Pence uh, took the first step today, Adam, to, to launch a 2024 presidential run. He's also got a new autobiography in the works. It looks like he's taking steps to 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 jockey for 2024.
4: Well, there's no question that he and others uh, have their sights set, you know, a couple of years off. But all eyes right now should be on Mar a Lago because uh, Donald Trump is still the heart of the Republican Party. Uh, He is the conductor on that train. Uh, And anyone that wants to advance, uh, if it's not him, in 2024 is going to probably need his blessing to have something other than a rocky ride down those rails.
2: Governor DeSantis also in a feud with CBS News reporter uh, from 60 Minutes for uh, a genie for a report uh Regarding the, his handling of the vaccination, uh, you know it's it's fueled renewed chatter that Governor DeSantis might be looking into running for 2024. Secretary Pompeo, former Secretary Pompeo uh, jockeying as well. Uh, for Pence, it's fascinating. I was talking with a Pence ally earlier today. It's fascinating, Jeannie, because on January 5th, as a reporter, I would say his biggest liability is, is that he's too close to Trump in, in a general election matchup against the Democrats. But then January 6th happened and now it's like no one knows the status of their relationship.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, I just have to take a step back and say, as you mentioned, we are not even 100 days in. And oh, the invisible primary <laughs> has already begun. Oh, I, yeah. You know, if you listen to the Canadians, they're always moaning their elections last a whopping 12 weeks or something. And we are <laughs> yeah. four years. It's absolutely astonishing. But to your point, of, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see who, you know, bubbles up to the top. I do think DeSantis is somebody to watch. Um, I, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, Certainly, there are a lot of people out there, and my view is that you know Trump is going to be playing kingmaker more than he will be like candidate. Um, but I think a lot is going to be determined by who he endorses in the primaries and the general election for 2022. That impacts how much power he has in the party.
2: Well, and I saw in the journal that Stephen Miller, remember him? He's launching a, a some a, a political. Uh, something with voting rights. I can't really keep up with the with that crowd. Um, But yeah, they're doing that. I saw that in the journal, Jeannie. So he's playing kingmaker on that front.
3: He's playing kingmaker on that. And you just reminded me, we heard news in the New York front that Rudy Giuliani's son may be, may be putting in a, in a run at some point in New York. So <laughs> we have a lot of fascinating elections to watch out for.
2: <laughs> well, the Kardashians hey, are ending, Adam. Hey. <laughs> But but, but wait but Jeannie. but but uh, but uh uh, 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 I'm blanking on the name. Caitlyn Jenner might be running for governor. So there you go, Adam.
4: <laughs> it's, it's a potpourri of personalities. Uh, look, uh, picking up on what Jeannie was talking about, uh, and with Ron DeSantis actually the governor of Florida, I remember I was on a show uh, in the middle of his run for governor. He had already become the nominee of the Republican Party. Andrew Gillum was kind of the talk of the state, and everyone kind of assumed. Andrew Gum was going to win. Um, um actually I'm sorry it's before the primary. And uh the suggestion was made that Adam Putnam was a very popular uh, commissioner of agriculture, kind of had it made, he had the establishment support, he had all the money, all the big corporations behind him blah blah blah. And uh but 3 days before that, Donald Trump had endorsed Ron DeSantis. He was down I think to like 25 points in the polls. And I got on this panel and they said, so Adam, I guess it's over. I said, yeah, it is. Uh, Ron DeSantis will be the nominee. And they all looked at me like I had been drinking. And I said, no, that is the power of the endorsement of Donald Trump. Now, if Donald Trump, uh, with the names that Jeannie was 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 you know, throwing out there, and then those are all very good people and all possibilities, if he were to rally behind one of them, I agree with her. He's a kingmaker. He is the kingmaker. And I think, uh, if he chooses one among the bunch, uh, you know, they can write all the books they want. They can make do all the national tours they want. They can take on 60 minutes all they want. But if Donald Trump says, I like this one, uh, that's the one most likely to emerge.
2: All right. I can hear people driving off the road and saying, why are you talking about 2024, Kev? Well, if you want to run a marathon, you got to start at the starting line. Okay, folks, so I'm doing my due diligence. I'll, I'll get back to policy now. Ari Nader, Jen DeLewi, and Will Wade report on the Bloomberg Terminal White House considering nearly doubling Obama's climate pledge. The White House is considering a pledge to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50% or more. By the end of the decade, according to people familiar with the deliberations, a target that would nearly double the country's previous commitment and require, Jeannie, dramatic changes in the power, transportation, and other sectors. The emissions reduction goal, which is still being developed and subject to change, is part of a White House push to encourage worldwide action to keep average global temperatures from rising more than one and a half degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. Wow.
3: Such an important story, and we probably will hear what they come out with um, specifically on the climate summit later this month. But that is would if they do stick with what this is reporting, they may. That is quite a a move forward, a step forward. And there are a lot of people in the country and around the world who are going to welcome that news.
2: Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said earlier today that the tax plan that she's pushing for overseas is going to recoup $2 trillion in overseas profits. She wants to tax overseas profits, and she says it'll help pay for infrastructure. Adam Goodman, my friend. You're a good man, Goodman. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Thanks for coming on, Adam. This is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
1: Listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
2: My name is Kevin Cirilli, on the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, accompanied with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Shanzano. You know my good friend here, Jen Jacobs. You've heard of her. You've read a report. She had a brilliant scoop out on the Bloomberg terminal. Jen's story is uh, about Adam Bowler. And I was just thinking the other day, I was talking to my friend Morgan. I, I said, what, what's what's Adam Bowler been up to? And I used to interview Adam on, on Pebble Beach at the White House. Uh, he, of course, uh, really was a driving force in the, in the Middle East peace talks, uh, as well as the former CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, uh, a, really a, a force in, in the nonpartisan efforts of the uh, early days of uh PPE distribution and and the pandemic response, really uh, working with the public and private partnerships uh, and the non-political, apolitical types. Uh, And now he's got this new healthcare investment firm with two private equity partners. It's a Nashville, Tennessee-based firm. I am a country music fan, as as you all know, maybe. Uh, Rubicon Founders, it's the name of the the Nashville-based firm, Rubicon Founders. Rubicon Founders will create companies and help fund purchases of existing firms, Adam told my colleague, Jennifer Jacobs. Adam Bowler joins us on the telephone line. Adam, explain to us what you're up to with Rubicon Founders.
5: Thanks, Kevin, for the introduction. And by the way, since you're a country music fan, we moved into Dirk Bentley's house. So Are thought, you kidding me? <laughs> See, you I shouldn't have said that, you, Adam, because now I
2: have 8 million that. questions and none of them have to do with Rubicon founders. <laughs> so so cut me off now, buddy. What are you up to?
5: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go back to the, the real issue, but Rubicon. Um, so we founded the firm, and the goal of the firm is to build transformational healthcare care businesses. Um, and that's kind of what I did before I went into government was really focused. I, I launched a firm called Landmark Health which is the leading provider of in-home medical care in the country, kind of house calls uh, back to the future. Uh, and so that is a business that United uh, has been rumored to be purchasing for about $3.5 billion. Um, and so my goal here is to create businesses from scratch. Usually I do them with partners or to purchase large businesses with a focus on where can we really transform the industry and make a big difference.
2: So, where do you find the biggest opportunity uh, for to, to in the marketplace right now to address so much of the so many of the issues in healthcare?
5: Well I yeah, like what you see right now and, and the cool thing now is all these great innovative companies that are entering the public market, people like oscar uh, bright, um, you know others that are coming into the field uh, Oak Street Health. so there's a huge intersection between insurance companies and providers so You have a lot of physicians that are now moving to kind of have insurance arms within their own. So I think that intersection between payer and provider is a lot of times called value-based care is really interesting. Uh, The other thing you see in healthcare that's super exciting is kind of the influx of data. So when you look at genomic information, genomics is really taking off. Uh, We worked a lot with Illumina. That's a really interesting space. Um, And then I'm not only thinking domestically, we're looking at things like women's health internationally. So... There's there, generally for me there's two criteria. One, it have to be a big segment where you can really do something. And two, it's gotta be mission oriented and make healthcare better. There are so many ways to build a great business that improve healthcare, that it's important to do things that, that help people.
3: Adam, I, I'm really sorry you told Kevin about the Dirk Bentley house because I don't think he's going to get over it now. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I'm not. I'm not. Do I need to give you a tour now? <laughs> well, I think
3: you do. <laughs> you know, I
5: still I
2: always ask Senator Blackburn where, where uh, Keith and Nicole have sushi down in Nashville because I'm a huge <laughs> Keith Urban fan. But go ahead, see, I'm off. <laughs> well, now, now I'm off to the in races.
5: Nashville is all healthcare and country music, so we combine the two. So that's why we're doing it. That's amazing.
3: I wanted to just ask you how, because you were so active, if you could just reflect for, for a minute on the work that you did early in the pandemic and what you learned from that and how that applies to the work that you're doing now.
5: Yeah, so the real, if you look at what I focused on in the pandemic, it was bridging our shortages. So it was supply, so N95 masks ventilators um are testing and my main learning there is the federal government when partnered with private market does phenomenally so when you look at when we launched testing we launched it with CVS we launched it with Walmart we launched it with Walgreens and so what we did is we provided the platform and now if you look at 25 30% of testing in the United States is done in pharmacies because they kind of leveraged our purchasing power. Same thing you see with Operation Warp Speed, right? What we did is we took the government's strength um, and our ability to source um, and we pushed go, but we partnered with private companies to make that happen. And now you see the vaccines coming out and you see they're being distributed. Where are they being distributed? Through our private market. So the United States, like the thing that makes us the best country in the world is our private market. And when we partner well with private market, that's where you get unbelievable by- outcomes.
2: You know, I, we were talking about this yesterday just to provide a historical perspective. Uh, this month is the anniversary of the start of World War I, which the U.S. was involved with for just more than over a, a year, 18 months, I believe. Um, 107 years ago, obviously, uh, the the start of World War I and, and the U.S. involvement uh, in it lasting just more than a year, 18 months. Here we are. When you look at it historically, that launched so many technological advances. It reshaped society around the world. What we're going through now, I think everyone would would argue, in the pandemic, has reshaped uh, markets. It's reshaped uh, industries. And and you, obviously, from the experience of being there at ground zero from the from when this pandemic whacked the world, how do you see the healthcare industry being rebuilt, being reshaped? in a post-pandemic, not only market, but just for the average consumer?
5: Well, I think what's happened in the pandemic is we waived a lot of regulation. that now looking back in retrospect, halted innovation. So perfect examples there, telemedicine. I mean, look at companies like Teladoc and look at why should we not pay the same for a visit video uh, over uh, in person, right? Why, why are those restrictions? a CMS allowed hospital at home and passed regulation uh, right before the, uh, the Trump administration ended, why is a hospital defined by its walls? Uh, why can't a hospital provide acute services wherever it is, even if it's in somebody's home? Um, and, and so I think some of the practicing across state lines, uh, why do we need different regulations to stop the practice of medicine We, you know, across state lines? So those things that have been bypassed because they needed to be in the pandemic, I think now we have the realization on some of them that they were holding up innovation, and these are probably things that should stick.
2: So to follow up on that, just in terms of uh, uh, protecting the, the the information and the data of of, of healthcare, uh, not just workers but just uh, Americans who are going and processing through all the digital digitalization uh, of these issues. I mean, how important is that going to be to be to make sure that that these systems aren't vulnerable from malign actors?
5: I mean, I think it's super important. I mean, the key here, right, is you can't let that stop innovation. I mean, think about what we do right now when we bank online, when we do all of our financial transactions online, right? You're not going to stop the, the kind of the engine of innovation, but if you're going to do telemedicine, if you're going to have it, we already have electronic patient medical records. We've got to make sure they're secure, but people have to have access to them. So one of the initiatives I worked on quite a bit when I was at CMS is making sure that individuals get access to their own electronic medical records. And it's not, you know, somebody would hand me a CD. I don't have a CD player. What is it, 10 years ago? <laughs> Why don't you hand me an A-track? <laughs> you know, it, you know, see, this is data. That, this is your data, right? Um, uh, and so that's been very important. And by the way, that all of this work, all the stuff we're talking about, is totally bipartisan work. This isn't, yeah. you know, people don't think this because they're Republican or Democrat. They think it because they're Americans.
2: Well, at least they didn't hand you a floppy disk. Listen, you <laughs> were at, you're the former CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, speaking of apolitical, nonpolitical, nonpartisan types of institutions. Just from your vantage point, Talk to us about uh, uh, the USIDFC, DFC as it's commonly referred to, in terms of just the leverage that that provides for the United States uh, around the world with our allies and, and to, to counter uh, countries like China.
5: I think it's massively important. So China has an initiative called the Belt and Road Initiative yep. where they have over a trillion dollars that they're investing in countries. And that makes a huge difference And how countries act and we would speak to countries that would say listen on an issue like 5g uh where we are worried about chinese penetration into our internal networks we can't back away we can't align with the united states because we owe china too much money and so the goal of the dfc uh and again as you mentioned bipartisan legislation i was confirmed 100 to zero um our goal was threefold number one to advance development in emerging countries two to advance u.s foreign policy and three, we are one of the only agencies in government that reduces the deficit. We return money to the taxpayer, American taxpayer. So in every deal we look, we'd look at that. And I will tell you on the front lines of some of these things, I, the, the way I thought about it is we are the money of the U.S. government. Uh, wow. We're the investment arm of the U.S. government, and that matters massively.
2: Adam Bowler, thanks so much for catching up with us. One of those non political, apolitical type voices, confirmed 100 to 0 by the Senate uh, for his post. Uh, and it's fascinating. Uh He's got this new venture, Rubicon Founders, based in Nashville. Adam, thanks for catching up with us. Uh, appreciate that. And we are going to be carefully following uh, the infrastructure debate tomorrow, as well as on Friday. Jeannie Sean Zeno, thanks for sticking around with me. Bloomberg Politics contributor, thanks to the whole team, our producer, Matt Shirley, as well as the executive producer, Christine Baratta. My name is Kevin Surley. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. This is Bloomberg.